Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Once you start something, it takes on a life of its own. It takes on a natural evolution. And that is true with kids, with podcasting, and with careers. Adam Posner, welcome. You start doing interviews with Grant Cardone's and Jordan Harbinger's, and now you got to have fancy equipment and Uh blue lighting. Oh, the lighting's ridiculous. Once I have the the whole setup here, but I, I just booked about an hour ago Tucker Max. I heard you mention him actually on Jordan's episode. Yeah. And he originally said no to me about eight months ago. And his assistant was like, basically reached back out in six months. So I set a reminder on my calendar. I did it. She answered in two minutes. Yes. Who else has said no? Gary V hasn't said yes yet. He hasn't said anything. Not nice. We're not recording, are we? We are. Oh, good. Great. (laughs) Let's save that. Set that. I don't mean that in a good way. No, he's a busy guy. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot of things going on. It's Gary V. But I'll get him on my show. I'm saving episode 155 for him. I believe what you put out to the universe will come back. He knows I harass him. Why 155? His favorite number is five. And I'm saving 155. I could have saved 150, but 155 is two fives. All right. Right. So 150 is my episode. I I have a special episode for 150 already done with uh, Joe Mullings when I recorded it down in Florida. How was Florida? It was great. We recorded in Joe's, I think you've seen that. We recorded in Joe's amazing proper production facility. It's like a, it's like a studio. It's a proper studio, like three camera shoot. And we just sat down, like he has a green room. It's insane what he built down there. And he has a green room that's beautiful, like couches and like frigid. Like it's just, it's, it's so proper. Like you would come in there and you'd be like, this is best in class television production right here. And we did a three camera shoot all off the cuff. Like literally like for five minutes, we're like, all right, what are we going to talk about? I'm like, He's like, so you got this. He goes, I'm like, so you're interviewing me? He goes, no, no, you're interviewing me. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's your show, man. I go, it's your studio. He goes, well, you're my guest. I go, that doesn't make sense. And like, literally, I'm just like on. And I just did the podcast like off the cuff, like full, like cold intro read, got into it. And like, I would not have been able to do that like a year and a half ago. Talk about that because I got you on your first podcast and I actually went back and listened to it today. Have you listened to your first podcast? Could you send that to me? I will. I was on a show a couple of weeks ago and the host, you ready for this shit? One of my pet peeves. So we're having the conversation beforehand. I'm like, cool. You know, we're, we're chatting. I haven't talked to him yet. I'm like, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, so where do you want to take the show? Where do you want to take the episode? And he's like, I don't know. You tell me. I go, no, uh, no, no, no. And I'm like, he's like, well, well, what do you want to talk about? I go, all right. Okay, I see what I see where this one's going. And I'm like, all right, I'll start with a little bit of my career story. You know, I'll tell the Gary V thing. He's like, what do you mean, Gary V? I'm like, so you did no research. Yeah, you didn't even read. You haven't even watched like my intro video. Anyway, pet peeve, right? Like, yeah, I have had a few of those too. It makes it so much better when people at least listen to a couple episodes. Like they don't have to know everything about uh, you, but it has some talking points. And look at my about section on my LinkedIn page. Like it's all there, you know, like the story, the links and everything. Yeah, so you are like 
born and raised New York, like lived there your whole yeah. life. So tell me <laughs> what that is like. You know, I, I talk about New York a lot and I think it's a pride thing. Like, you know, you're, you're originally from Chicago. I am originally from Kentucky, but my dad is from New York. Got it. So your dad gets it. And I think you get it from that. Like there's a certain pride to some of these cities in this country and New York is at the top of the list and born in Brooklyn, Sheepshead Bay, right? Like that is the root of it and lived there till I was 12. And it's so funny. I, everyone's like, oh, you know, where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn. Okay. Well, you, you moved to Long Island. I'm like, not until I was freaking 12. Like I am a born and raised New Yorker. I lived in Brooklyn. There's a lot of people that are born there. They live there till they're like six months, eight months, a year. And then they move. That doesn't count. You were born there, but you're not from there. You know the difference? Like I'm from Brooklyn and there's a lot of pride that comes to my family's from Brooklyn. My dad's from Brooklyn. My mom's from Brooklyn. They were born in Brooklyn. They met in Brooklyn. And that goes a long way. You know, having that New York City pride, I've never lived outside of New York State. You know, I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Manhattan, lived in Long Island, went to school in Buffalo. I've always been in the state of New York. So I really care about it and, and a lot of pride. And, you know, what's happening right now with COVID, like they destroyed our city. The government destroyed New York. They they crushed the restaurants. They crushed, listen, they had to shut down Broadway. They had to shut down the nightlife and everything. But what they did to the restaurants, man, it was like, you didn't have to go that far. You should have let people have a choice. There's a balance of being mindful of people's health concerns and letting people make a decision if they want to go into a restaurant or not. Out here in Long Island, the restaurants are fully open, precautions, dividers, and it's fine. And they're thriving and they're doing well. Why couldn't they do that in Manhattan? You could say maybe population density, but I would argue back, you give people a choice. If they want to come into the restaurant, it's safe. Limited capacity, maybe 50%, 75%. But you're putting people out of business. You know how expensive it is to open up a restaurant in New York City to begin with? Who's going to want to come back and take that chance? Anyway, I digress. What was it like being a kid there? That has to be a different kind of childhood. Like, <laughs> Yeah, growing up in Brooklyn is weird. So around the corner from my house, about two years ago, I'm outside doing, doing yard work in front of my house and this car pulls up. It was like a hot rod sports car. And this guy gets out the window. Adam Posner, is that you? And I was like, oh shit. Like, am I getting whacked or something here? And I'm looking at the guy for a minute and I, got, I have like a rake in my hand. Like I'm going to beat him with it or something. And he's like, it's Matthew Duran. Matthew Duran, I lived on the sixth floor. He lived on the first floor. He used to babysit me when I was a kid. Turns out he lives a couple blocks away around the corner. He goes, hold on, hold on. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. He comes back like 15 minutes later with an envelope. He was really into photography. Got my dad in for photography. He gave me a stack of photos that he had of my brother and I growing up in Brooklyn playing Little League. This is Brooklyn in, I figure I'm like seven years old. This is probably 1986 with the wow. graffiti on the wall. Yeah, this is across the street from where I grew up. So I have this in my office, just a little reminder. <laughs> that's where you came from oh my yeah, god so you grew up around graffiti and like <laughs> no i think the brooklyn thing i think it does two things it opens you up to being accepting of other people more than a lot of other because you, you're surrounded by it but then you're also a victim of stereotypes you know the jewish kids you have the italian kids you have the black kids the spanish kids right like we had our we had our, our groups and everything and there was definitely you know riffraff between them all you know it was brooklyn but uh i think growing up in brooklyn just keeps you more open to the multicultural vibe, just being more open. And I think that was a huge foundation in kind of who I am when I look back on it. How does that play into how you're raising your children? It's a balance of teaching them to accept everybody, to go with their gut feeling and to form their own decisions, right? I teach my daughter to not be judgmental and make her own decisions. And, and she's always just had the most empathetic, sweetest heart. So it's kind of natural for her. And it's interesting. I think that 
children learn from the home, what they hear, what they see. If your parent is a racist, there's a damn good chance you're going to be a racist. You know, these biases that we have, they're subconscious biases that you don't even think about, but they're your decision and your default because that's what you grew up with. Big believer in that. You could change it, but you're affected by it. My parents were both the most easygoing, mellow, like they were fine. Yeah, they weren't, they didn't have anything. They had not racist bone in their body. And I really, I'm not just saying that because we're recording, but it's true. It really is true. It wasn't even, you know, one of those under the breath kind of things. They were just hippies. My parents are just hippies. My mom was at Woodstock. My dad was a, you know, an art teacher in the city. I have all these crazy wood sculptures in my house. He was a wood sculptor, went to Italy, studied stone carving, like, yeah, like crazy shit. And it's really interesting. So my parents moved down to Florida and this is uh, right after Hurricane Sandy and they put all their stuff in storage. That storage stayed there for a while. And then finally we bought a house and all the boxes came back. I never really sorted them. I never really looked through them until a couple of months ago. And I found a treasure chest of my dad's black and white photos from circa 1974, 1975. Let's just say there was things I probably wish I didn't see in those photos. Tell me. I'll leave it at that. I got to protect my dad. But (laughs) there was things in there that were really um, eye-opening. Some self-portraits that he took, 1974. I'll leave the imagination uh, up to you guys. But uh, it was really interesting look into my dad's kind of psyche, right? If you go back to 1974, what's happening in the world, you know? The end of Vietnam, right? That whole era. He was in postgraduate art school, traveling to Italy, that artist mentality, right? Being in Italy in 1974, much different place than it is now. And just some really interesting photos of what he was thinking, what he was doing. And I just sat there on the floor in the basement just for hours, just looking at the photos, going through them, kind of putting them together, you know, trying to tell the story. And I didn't really talk to him about it yet. So I haven't seen my parents up until February, until we went down to Florida. I haven't seen them in a year. They're coming in May. So I think I'm going to sit down with him and go through those photos, but I might hide a couple so he doesn't think they're coming. It's weird. I, I, I'll i leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, like, have you asked him about that time? Like, did you want to know what your dad was like? Yeah. I mean, then? that's a, that's a good one. I think I could tell a lot from the photos because I don't think my dad has changed a lot in since my mom met him because she says it too. your dad. She's like, your dad is the same guy that I met 46 years ago. It's crazy to think that. I mean, I've been with my wife for 13 years. I can't even think another 30 years from now. And you say that your wife is like, the one who has believed in you and told you that you could do it on your own and that you could leave the agency life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the fact that she's, I don't think I could be where I am without her. I know for a fact I couldn't be where I am without her. If I didn't have that support, if I didn't have that encouragement, if I didn't have somebody that said, when I, I was like, I am done with this, I'm done working for other people. I'm going to go out on my own. A lot of other people I would have been like, what the hell are you thinking about? You know, you need a steady job, you need a steady paycheck, but she knew that I had a dream. She knew that I follow through on executing when I have a vision and that like, I keep repeating that word tenacity, but when you have that tenacity, nothing's going to stop you from getting what you want. You know, I look at the studio in this office, I had a vision. I said, I wanted it and I got it done. I wasn't always like this, you know, but Tell I me when it, you weren't. Yeah. I think, you know, early, early on in my career, early on in my life, when you're kind of like a cog in the wheel, a cog in the machine, you're kind of going through the motions. You have an idea of what you think success should look like. I should be in this company. I should work my way up the ladder. But it wasn't until I saw the other side, what it was like to work for yourself. That's when everything changes. When you have to eat what you kill, that changes the dynamic of anything. Anyone in a sales role understands that. Even if you're like working for somebody else, right? Like you understand that. Like, But when you have to eat what you kill, when you're responsible for making money from your level of effort that you put into something, it's a game changer. And then take it to the next level. When you own your own business, you can't stop. You can't take your foot off the gas. 
Like even when I try to downtime, even when I'm trying to go on vacation, there is still checking in because you're running a business. So it's hard to disconnect. It's hard to find long periods of time to disconnect. So you try to find those moments. You try to find the weekend, two or three days to put the phone down, even micro moments. Like even if you're just sitting on the couch watching TV, put the phone out of reach. How often do you do that? Never. Um, <laughs> I, I try to do it a couple of days a week. A little time, yeah. like an hour here, a couple hours there. We have the no phone at dinner rule. We physically put the phones, you know, in the other room. No iPads, no phones, no electronics. That's a big one. I can't even tell you how many times we're at friends' houses or, you know, and like all the kids are on the phone. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, that's sacred. I need to do that. I mean, we turn off our phone 24 hours a week for Shabbos, which is amazing. And actually, we just had Passover where there were like two Seder nights. Yeah. So we turned off from Friday sundown until Monday night. That was amazing. That's, do you leave a phone on for like emergencies, like family emergencies? My husband does, but like we don't even look at it. It's just there. It's on. You yeah. can kind of glance over it if someone called or anything. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the cool things. So, so let me tell you something. So the office I'm renting uh, is in the Chabad building, which is pretty cool. It's actually where my daughter went to pre-K. So the rabbi's a landlord. He's awesome. He blessed my office. We put the mezuzah up. Like it was great. I love it. He's, he's my homeboy, but they shut down and they're closed all week. So it's literally a ghost town in here in the building. There's a few other offices open, but you got to respect that because you're, you're, you're literally saying we are shutting off work. We're focused on family. We're focused on the holiday. We're focused on the religious meaning behind it and everything else could wait. That's one of the cool things about Judaism, right? Like it's family focused. Like we don't get too religious with the satyrs. We literally like, if you go back to when I was younger, and we would go to my surrogate grandparents' house in Brooklyn. It was full on Seder. I remember it. It was an old house in Brooklyn. And we would do full Seder, like literally the whole book. You're reading the and whole Haggadah, hours, like word by hours. word. Oh my God, you're Hebrew. exhausted. I was yeah. reading it phonetically. And I would like, and they would expect me to read in Hebrew. I knew like three things in there. And like, I remember I just want to eat. Like, and then they do the full Passover Seder plate. And anybody who knows what I'm talking about, it's brutal. And then like, as I've gotten older, it's literally gotten to the point now where it's like, all right, we got some plagues. The Jews went through the desert. They dealt with some shit. And uh, cool, let's eat. Cool, three minutes later, good to go. That's where we're at now in my family. The things on the Passover plate are things you don't have in your house. Bitter herbs. What the fuck is a bit like haroches? Like what? Like what? Like I. So I have to make a mix of what? What? what what's in that? Right? It's like things you don't have in the house. I forgot the cinnamon. I'm like, all right, right the man of Shevitz has got enough sugar i'm doing apples we got some nutmeg. crushed nuts like, and when the hell I, right like throw the wine in there we're good now i gotta boil a shank bone like what the hell like, i know shank? i forgot to cook it i'm like just throw it on the burner that we left open you know it's fine so so this year we, we just completely skipped that whole step <laughs> and i don't know where we got it from but basically it was a, it was the funniest thing i'll send you a picture afterwards <laughs> but it was a kit of plague masks it was for kids each mask was a different plague there was there was locust there was covid there was right? There was all the plagues in, in mask form. So we all sat around the table and each one of us was a plague. And then my sister-in-law went around the room and she, she, she knew the story kind of offhand. And she went around and she said with all the plague, it was really cute. It was great. That's adorable. We actually, like when our firstborn was like two and our- Did you slay one, the firstborn according to the Passover? It's slaying of the firstborn. That's one of that the That would have been good. Maybe we'll do that next year. We're like, just going to we'll slay our firstborn. That. We're just going to really do it. We saw these people like kind of like what you're saying with like the mass, like acting parts of it out. And we're like, oh, we got to do something fun like that. So 
every year, and this has become like such a fun tradition, we have two blue tablecloths and a pink one for the sand and our kids run through the splitting sea. So me and my husband like make waves with like the blue tablecloths and we sing Lashana Haba like they're leaving right. Egypt into the free land. We had like I'm going to do that next year. What are those things called? Like handcuffs. Like sometimes <laughs> we had like a staff. We had the kids like fighting wow. to get so we handcuff the, the kids. So we slay our firstborn. What a great holiday. And it's really brutal. <laughs> like if you actually really read this stuff, it is brutal. I mean, the Jews went through some shit. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that's awesome. It sounds like you had a good time. Yeah, it always is. I do want to know, I wanted to go back to that first podcast episode and like dig a little bit deeper into your career path, just out of serious curiosity. So you were doing some work where you were helping inmates. You know, what's so crazy about that? I did a clubhouse room earlier today with two gentlemen I met through that program. So it's called the five ventures. Yeah. Long story short, it's a Baylor university accredited program that goes into prisons. It's huge. It's in a number of East coast, West coast. And they go into prisons and it's basically like a shark tank program. It's an entrepreneurial program in prisons to work with incarcerated men and women to not just teach them the business skills, but really life skills, like how to balance a checkbook, how to properly look at someone in the eye and apologize to them and mean it. Shit that folks that are incarcerated probably have never done. How to genuinely apologize. You have to teach that to somebody. So it starts out, you know, a lot of men and women are volunteering for it and then it narrows down. But the Defy program, it takes business leaders, folks like myself, and it puts us into the prisons. They take us into the prison, which is which is crazy because if you think about my comfort zone, th- this program has taken me two things. One, it's taken me out of my comfort zone. The last place, the scariest place on earth for me is a prison, right? The last place a 42-year-old Jewish man from Long Island ever wants to be is in prison. And you go in and it's scary as shit. Your phone's gone. You have to take your belt off. There's a background check and everything. And it was scary. So the first time I went to the, the women's correctional facility, and they say the women's one is actually much more hardcore, but you go in there and you're standing, they do this first exercise. It's called walk the line where the EITs, the entrepreneurs in training, the inmates, we don't call them that, they're EITs. And the coaches, which we are, stand across from each other. And they start off with things like, If you have two parents, take a step backwards. If you have one parent, take a step backwards. If you have no parents, stay where you are. And you start to see similarities and differences. If you've been convicted of a crime, if you've ever done anything wrong, and it goes through this whole exercise where you see how much you have in common and how different you are. And at the end, they start to go through, if you've been incarcerated for one year, five years, 10 years, until you see someone standing across you that's been behind bars for 30 years, and they ask how old she is, And she's 42. She's been in jail since she was 12 years old, one way or another. And that's the eye-opening shit. And then you're standing across from an inmate who lost her children because she committed a crime. Their kids are taken away from her permanently. So this program really goes in and to give these inmates a real first, second chance, to give them a second chance for real. So when they come out, they're empowered to actually do something. And this program has dropped the recidivism rate, like I think like 80% plus. It's incredible. It's fantastic. How did you get involved with that? Yeah, great question. So my mentor, Marcus Glover, who is just an incredible human being, he is the chairman of the Tri-State Defy Ventures program. He introduced me to it and I haven't looked back. And I was getting really involved with it pre-COVID. There was a big prison visit coming up and I was excited for it. I was going to be like leading a group and just something I really put my mind into. So I'm excited to get back to it. I don't know how long it's going to take to even think. I mean, COVID is affected. They're not really talking about it in the media much, but it is devastated, has devastated the prison system because they don't give a shit. Wow. I love that story. And I would love to know, like, 
Because when you find out that you've experienced things that other people have, it's like instant connection. Yes. And I think that's the point of it to show how close we really are. And it comes down sometimes to someone just getting caught or not getting caught. Listen, when I lie, if I haven't done illegal, we've all done illegal things one way or another in our life, different extremes. Let's just say I was selling drugs in college, hypothetically, and I never got caught for one reason or another. Maybe it was the color of my skin, maybe circumstance. And then the guy I'm standing across for relatively the same age as me, maybe at the age of 18, black living in the inner city, got caught with a couple pounds of weed and because laws were different back then, couple pounds of weed. Literally, we got legalized in New York State today, recreational marijuana. This guy's been behind bars for 20 years for a couple of pounds of weed. Whole life destroyed. One bad decision, and maybe he got caught and I didn't. Mind-blowing. And that'll open up your eyes and like just put everything in perspective. You walk out of there, you're like, holy shit. But the best part about this entire program, Anna, is the graduation, which I was lucky to see. They go through this whole program for two years. It starts with, let's, let's just say, 40, 50 inmates, and it gets narrowed down to maybe eight that have made it through this program. Then they have a graduation. Bells and whistles, cake. They bring the families in. And this is the craziest thing to experience. The look on the family's faces, happiness, and proud of their son or daughter, brother, sister, father, mother, grandparent, for the first time ever in their life, they're actually proud of them for accomplishing something. That look, the tears, I, I get emotional thinking about that moment. Like that was like one of the heaviest things about it. Like that's some crazy shit. They have something to live for when they come out. And that's why I get behind this program. That's what I donate to. I did my birthday fundraiser for Defy. And I never thought in my life that this would be my cause that I'm fighting for. But this is my cause. I think everybody needs a cause to put their resources and time into. You can't be everywhere all the time. So pick one and put your all into it. I want to talk about how that plays into recruiting, which is what you do. That's an interesting transition. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you are talking to people and seeing if they're going to be a good fit for an organization, right? You said on another interview, it's like going on 25 blind dates a day. Like you need <laughs> to be a good conversationalist. You also need to be good at getting that kind of information out of people. That's a great point. I think that a great, I think it was a logical transition for me to have a podcast being a recruiter and vice versa. I think the podcast makes me a better recruiter and being a recruiter makes me a better podcast host. And also the fact that I'm naturally inquisitive. I like to listen and I like to find out those kernels because there's a lot in that first phone conversation with a candidate. And I learned this on day one of being a recruiter. You want to find out somebody's why, their motivation, because that's your leverage in any type of conversation and recruitment. Why does Rena not like her job? Why is she looking for a new job? Is it money? Is she not getting what she wants there financially? Maybe she's working too many hours. Maybe she's not being valued there. There's no logical career, whatever it is. Has you she ever walked find, out? <laughs> right. You, yeah, but you need to find out that why. That why is what drives a recruitment conversation. And then what do you do with that information? And you use it against them. No, um, that drives a conversation because depending on what side of the recruiting equation you are, like say you're doing like agency contingency recruiting, we get to that finish line and there's an offer on the table and you need that candidate to take that offer so you could get your commission and say, Rena, what are you thinking about here? Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. All right, let's go back to the first time we talked. You told me here's what you're not getting right now in your current job. X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three. This job gives you A, ensures you have B. Make sure you have some C in your life. That's what you bring to the table. And that's a motivator to close a candidate. Have you ever talked somebody into a job? You don't want to talk somebody into a job. You have to be careful because I never want to put somebody in a position where they're making a life decision because next to who you marry, who you're with, kids, jobs are one of the biggest life decisions. So I'm never going to push somebody into something that they don't want, and they're not going to be set up for success. I back people out of jobs. I've talked people out of jobs. 
Recruiting is the craziest business because the human X factor on all sides, you cannot control. You can lead a horse to water. You can't force him to drink. I can't force somebody to take a job. I really try lately to align myself with companies that I believe in that are good places to work because it makes my job easier. Unfortunately, you don't always have the ability to do that because we got to work. And that's what makes the job hard. So you try to find people where their values align with the company, where it's right for other reasons. I would never work with an awful company, but maybe some companies are perceived a little bit differently. Can you tell me about the time nope. you work? I think it was at Cyrus Radio uh, when Sirius? Howard Stern was, say that again. Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Yeah. Tell me about when you were working there and Howard Stern came on. Howard for me, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, let's take it back to Brooklyn. He was kind of big in the New York market when I was like 11, 12 years old. And I remember I'm like, oh my God, this like that's when you're like 12 years old and dirty words and talking about like sex and stuff like that. And I have a very vivid memory of getting my first boom box, which I remember sitting in my room in Brooklyn and I listened to, to Stern. I was on like K-Rock or something back then. And I've always kind of listened to Howard. Like I literally been listening to Howard for 30 years and he's just part of my life. But when he made the move in 2005 from terrestrial radio to satellite radio, that's when everything changed. When he was able to go on satellite radio and have a completely open format where he wasn't limited by commercial breaks, where he wasn't censored, he turned into the most amazing interviewer on the face of the earth that he always has been. And he was able to have these conversations. They're not interviews, they're conversations like we're having now. Not a Q&A, right? But a conversation where he gets these people to talk about things that they wouldn't do on any, anywhere else. And I talk about, the one that I absolutely love is Hillary Clinton. This is about a year and a half ago. And love her or hate her, Hillary is extremely accomplished, world leader, road scholar, like things that we can't even imagine. She's lived a life that very few ever have. And instead of talking in politics with her, he talked Trump with her and the Trump stuff's great. But he asked her how Bill and Hillary met. And he unpacked the love story of Bill and Hillary Clinton going back to whenever they met in, when it was at the early 70s, whatever it was in, in college, university, I think it was at law school. And that story is just Hillary being like, just taking her back to the essence of who she is, not who she is now. Like when, when did Bill and Hillary meet? That love, like what attracted them to each other? And it's a fantastic love story. And I use that example of how I try to be a host, to try to have an organic conversation, to talk about things that maybe... People don't always talk about because like you're getting to a point now, like where I, I book guests and you book guests are on a lot of other shows. How do you make the conversation different? How do you bring out something that maybe they haven't spoke about? And that takes work. It takes research and listening back to, you know, a lot of their stuff. Dave Meltzer, Dave Meltzer, someone you and I both love. Dave on every show talks about the jacket that his dad gave to me. He talks about the story about his dad's jacket. So I'm like, shit, I'm going to have Dave on the show. And I know Dave pretty well at this point. And I'm like, I'm going to do everything I can to stump him on this. I'm going to throw him curveballs, questions, because I know he's going to try to jam it in there. So like halfway through the interview, he starts to go on the riff about the jacket. And I literally just cut him off, right? I literally just like stump him right, right in front of it. And he like, he kind of gave me the look like, all right. And I'm like, cool, I did it, right? And then right at the end of the interview, we're talking about something else. And then out of nowhere, he just jams it right back in. I couldn't even block it. And he tells a freaking jacket story. I'm like, son of a bitch. And he like kind of winked at me like, you got one up on me, kid. But you know what? You're not, you know, you're not going to get one on the old gray back over here. But those are the things you got to do as a host. And those are things I really enjoy about podcasting. And, you know, I look to folks like Howard Stern. And the second to Howard is Andy Cohn, who I love, who Howard Stern is his mentor. And I look for that style of interviewing where it's entertaining, where it's educational, where you're hitting on those points, when you're going high, when you're going low, when you're going deep, funny, emotional. It just brings out another side of me that, that I love. Like, I wouldn't have done all this if I didn't love it. This makes me happy. This is my, this is my happy space, right? Do I need a mic like this? 
do anybody need a $500 mic? Does this sound different than any mic that anyone else has at the end of the day? Yes, it does. Okay. It does. And like, you can, you can make it like louder and deeper. You could like do things, right? Like, Ooh, give me a better call daddy. Better call daddy. <laughs> you, <laughs> you could, you could mess with it. So it's fun. That is fun. It's actually interesting. Another little story that I'll share. So I was hanging out with some friends over the summer and one of my buddies is a fantastic guitar player and we're outside in someone's backyard and he's just strumming away. And I said to him, I'm like, dude, I'm like, you're incredible. I had a couple of drinks at that point. I'm like, dude, you're incredible. I'm like, you know, you're just so good. I mean, I'm so jealous, man. Like, I wish I was able to have a talent like you to play guitar. And he's like, dude, he's like, I've listened to a couple of your shows. He's like, you're really good. Like, that's your talent. That That's your art. That's your craft. And I'm like, all right, like, I'll take it and kind of run with it. So I've embraced it. You know, the podcast has become intertwined with the business. One drives the other. And once I've kind of realized that and accepted it and be like, all right, this is it. I'm just going to go all in on both and let them, let them drive each other. And it's happening. Okay. So speaking of David Meltzer's jacket story, you've got to tell your Gary V story because that's something you talk about on every time you're interviewed, right? I try to move away from it. And I'm happy to talk about it on your show. Cause you are the reason I got into podcasting and you gave me my first chance. I've gotten to a point where I don't openly bring up the story because that was a long time ago. Tomorrow is V day. I'm going to write about it tomorrow. Tomorrow's V-Day. Tomorrow's six-year anniversary of me getting fired from VaynerMedia. It's April 1st. It happened on April Fool's Day. So April Fool's Day to me is always a joke on me, six years ago. And for me, it is the day that I look back for the last six years and say, that was the day I changed. That was the day that I took responsibility for my actions, accepted the reason I got fired from Vayner, took accountability, which opened up my portal of self-awareness, and vulnerability. And not just from buzzwords here, these are real things. And I was able to see the path forward and take that path and all those steps necessary to where I am today. So I look back on it and I wasn't fired. I'd say now that I was fired up, it ignited that fire. And I think it's important to look back, not all the time, because if you look back too much, you're going to hurt your neck doing it. You need to look back to know where you came from and see how far you've gotten. I was hired there. I didn't do what I was hired for. I didn't handle some interpersonal relationships well. I was a very different person. I didn't handle situations well. I didn't respond to feedback. I didn't course correct. And ultimately I lost my job. One part of me for a while just kicked myself because I had 15, 16 years working in advertising and marketing. I'm like, shit, guess I suck at this. But I sucked at parts of it, not all of it. That day that I got fired, the conversation with Gary really sat down and he said, stop focusing on the things that you suck at and double down your strengths. 35 years old, I'm not gonna fix all these things that I've been ingrained in my head for 15 years. So let's talk about what I'm great at. I'm great at this, great relationships. And you know what? I know the marketing and advertising industry like the back of my hand. Recruiting was a logical progression. So I take that advice with me for everything I do now. I focus on the strengths. Listen, there's things here and there that I'll try to fix, but I don't dwell on them. And that has been my guiding principle for the last six years. So tomorrow's a big day. It's a little holiday for me. How crazy is that that we're talking about this right now? Yeah, I actually, I actually, I don't usually write LinkedIn posts in advance. I never do. I write like kernels of ideas, like thought starters, but I wrote this one out already. I have it ready to go. Yeah, I thought about it a little earlier today, so I just wrote it. I, I've tried to do that a lot. Like I use a note section on my phone for a lot of ideas, and I'll put like kernels, like thought starters, or if I have like the the beginning of an idea, kind of treatments. All right, let's end with a love story. Tell me how you met your wife. We'll bring it back to 2017. I was coming out of a almost 10 year relationship with my college girlfriend, my college sweetheart, and very different relationship we had in college than post college. You know, it was a very different world, the working world. We were on together, off together. So we actually ended the relationship uh, 2017. And I was finally free. I was a free man. I'm going to be dating. I'm going to be out in the city, out and about, see what this dating thing is all about. 
literally like six, seven months into it, I had a couple of interesting dates, you know, some, some fun ones, some good ones. You know, I, I did my thing. I, I guess you call it sewing while though. It's been not really, I expected so much more. And I joined J date. This is before Tinder and all those things too. I was dating around a little bit on J date and everyone remembers back in the day, there was, you know, kind of chats. I don't know how they do it now, right? Probably the same thing, but like much nicer interfaces and apps. We didn't have apps. It was really on the computer. Yeah. Do the J date and it shows you who you match with and you have to like them or dislike them, whatever. And my now wife came up and it's important to note the time frame. probably three weeks before our first date. And we started talking and we would just talk online. We would talk. I live on the Upper East Side. You live on the Upper East Side. And then finally, we started talking more. I live on 95th Street and 2nd. She lives on 94th Street and 2nd. We're a block away from each other. We were kind of talking about getting together and going on an actual date, but my dance card was filled. I was literally going on like three dates a week and I kept pushing her off and I kept pushing her off. And she was super hot in the profile pic. And finally one day, and she tells me I was one day away from her walking away and never talking to me because I couldn't commit to a first date. So finally we committed to the first date. I lived a block away from each other. She came from work and we met at the sushi place, which is right underneath her building. First moment I looked at her, I'm like, she is so freaking hot. I'm like, she's so out of my league. I'm like, holy shit, there's no way this date's going to go well. There's like, I'm like a gargoyle next to her, right? Like there's no way. So the first meal we had, and this is when I knew it was real. We shared our first meal. First time meeting her first meal. I don't know anyone's ever done that on a first date. Like you don't know this person. But we just connected. And it's really interesting because basically any meal that we ever have together, whether we're just the two of us or even when we're with friends, 90% of the time we're sharing a meal, we're splitting something, we're doing it. And I think that really says a lot about our relationship. And we literally shared our first meal. It was miso black cod. And I forgot what the other thing was. We had a great meal. We had a great conversation. We went to the bar across the street. And at the end of the night, walking her to, to the door, I gave her a kiss and she tried to like pull me back in for a little bit. And I was like, no, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll talk to you soon. And we ended with a kiss and it was a fantastic night. I remember going back up to my apartment and my roommate, Tommy sitting on the couch. Like, how was, how was I'm like, dude, this chick is freaking hot. You're never going to believe it. She's so out of my league. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Oh my God. I don't think I knew that you were a J date success story too. Yes. I met my husband that way. They do it. They, the Jews got us. You should like re-reach back out to them. What it looks like 12 years, 13, 14 years later. They were still together. I recently did, and they like wanted to do an update story. I've got four J babies now. Oh, I got two J babies. Right. So when I have some free time, I'm going to reach back out to them and say <laughs> that we're actually still together. Just had our 11 year anniversary. Yeah. 13 years together. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Is there anything you'd like to ask my daddy? Mm, what are you most proud of your daughter for right now? That's different than you were proud of her for when she was 10 years old. Oh, that's sweet. And Nobody's what asked. is that one key quality and trait that you saw in her at 10 that she has now in spades? Two part of dad. Aw, thank you. And promote away. Let people know how they can find your podcast. Before I do that, I, I need to say publicly on your show. I say it all the time, but thank you. You gave, you saw something in me and you gave me my first chance. So if I, Sean was here today in my office's studio. So it really comes what? full circle. I told him I was coming on the show tonight. Sean came by. He lives like 20 minutes away. Came to check out the studio. You got me on my first podcast. It was like October of 7, 18, 19. I forgot when that was. You gave me my first <laughs> shot. You gave me my first shot. So I'm excited to hear this episode. But Raina gave me my first shot. And from then I got booked on other podcasts. It gave me the itch to go on my show. And all it takes is somebody to believe in you and encourage you. So thank you for believing in me. <laughs> You'll always be my first, Raina. Um, you could find me, the show, the podcast at thepodcast.com. Everything's there. All the live shows, all the hundred and 
30, 40 plus episodes I've done. And you can check out the business side at nhptalentgroup.com. And who is NHP talent named after? So funny you ask that. So when it came time to name my company, I remember sitting there with my wife. I was coming up with all these cliche names for recruiting companies. Star talent, rocket talent, place me, place you. It doesn't even matter. As a creative ad guy, none of them were sticking to me. None of them resonated. None of them felt good to me at all. And my wife goes, what is the most important thing in your life? And at the time, my son wasn't born. yet. was my daughter, Nina, who was my North Star. And I said, Nina. So I'm like, okay, Nina Talent, Nina Hiring. No, that doesn't work out. Well, what's her initials? NHP. Okay. I said, NHP Talent Group. And let it be written. But the only thing is now, my son Oliver is two and a half. Now I got to freaking name something after him one of these days. He's going to get pissed. For sure. I love that you have a daddy's girl too. She is. And she loves this. She's my best co-host. The episode I did with her and Jeremy and Rasa Smith is my number one downloaded episode. Go figure. Thousands wow. of people have listened to that episode. Like it has a significant edge over number two. It would be so cool to do one with my daddy and your daughter. We can do that. And then I'm like, someone's like, oh, do you want to have your dad on the show? I never want my, I love my dad, but he, he would be so cool. He'd be crying the entire episode. He's such a mush. Is your dad a mush? Oh yeah. Like it, it doesn't take a lot to get my dad to cry. And it's kind of messed up because I'm the same way now. Like I get so like during like peak COVID, I swear to God, like during peak COVID when everyone's like emotional and everything, I can't believe I'm going to admit this. Like the Dave Matthews channel on Sirius, no Sirius XM, the Dave Matthews channel, I would get so freaking nostalgic on a certain song or a live show, maybe because I love Dave so much and maybe because I miss going to concerts and everything. But like I would hear a certain song and I would get like emotional. I'm like, I'm really getting emotional over Dave. I suck. Like why am I crying over a Dave Matthews song or Coldplay even worse? So yeah, I'm basically turning into my dad except I have much cooler studio than him. <laughs> I can relate to that totally. Aw, music does it for me every time too, especially when I'm pregnant. Was your wife like an emotional pregnant um, woman? At times, it was ups and downs. I don't miss it at all. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, never, never doing that again. Office is closed. I couldn't <laughs> even imagine, like my son is two and a half. You have young ones. Like I'm done, like it's super cute now. Like I'm over, like, like let's, let's, like, come on, let's go. But my daughter, eight and a half, she's literally living her best life right now on vacation. She literally just goes house to house to friends, either our house, she's bouncing to their house, sleepovers. There's some weekends I literally see her for like 10 minutes and I'm fine with it because she's happy. I see her all the time. We went through a lot between my two kids. We lost four in three years. Yeah, I don't talk about that at all. Like, in, Oh my God, you know, I'm not, sorry. And, I did not know that. And it's not something I really want to get into because it's just, it's, it's, it's our story. It's not my story. So there's a six year gap between Nina and Oliver. It's amazing because she's a little mommy and she takes care of him and she's at the age where we don't have to worry about her and that's everything. But for me, the hardest part for me was I got so far past the baby stage with Nina that having Oliver was a shock to my system to go back oh. to, to baby mode. So much in the fact that I, I don't work well on no sleep. I don't work well on interrupted sleep. And it really messed me up right now. Like it really, really messed me up emotionally. I was in the heat of my business. I just like, I was like a year, barely a year into doing my own thing. And I had a lot of stress. And I didn't handle it well. And, and one night I lost my shit. I had a couple of drinks. I lost my shit. And I literally beat the crap out of my shed outside. I literally punched the crap. My hand was all cut up. I punched a glass window. And I lost my shit because I couldn't. I was sleep deprived. I was stressed out. And um, that was a big challenge for me when he, when he was little. Now I got it under control. You know, you deal with it. You, you, you manage your stress. You grow into parenting. And no, one, no book is going to teach you how to parent. I always tell people, well, do you have any parent advice? I go, yeah, don't listen to other people's advice. Be your own parent, figure it out. Figure your shit out what works for you. That's my parent advice. 
That's it. I can relate to that so much because I have had my two-year-old in my bed for the last two years. Like he has not spent That's... one night in his own bed and I need to beat a shed. You need to get him out of that bed. Do, <laughs> like, like, you know, like the whole verbalizing method with like training your kids to sleep and everything. That's basically like, you know what that is, right? Yeah. Like, like you literally, for anyone who doesn't know, you literally like to train your kids to sleep. You literally let them cry it out and you don't go in there. It's painful. My Your kid kids barfs. screaming, crying. Oh, good. That that you got to keep an eye out on, right? It's like awful. when they get they get so worked up that they yes, throw exactly. up. Yes, exactly. He's my like, only barfer. Oh God, thank God I don't have that. And like, <laughs> you the verbalizing method, it, it's painful because you got to like do it. Like so, the same thing here, Rena. You got to pull the bandaid off, throw him back into the bed. Is he in a crib still? I have a crib and an Elmo bed in my room. I'm like, pick. This is mommy's bed and daddy's bed. This is Boundaries. your crib or your bed. It's Boundaries. so bad. Boundaries. I suck at sleep training. I have literally let four children sleep in my bed till they're two. It's horrible. I don't, I don't even know how that affects your relationship with your husband, but we'll leave it there on that one. You know, once kids are asleep, they stay asleep. That's all I'll say. All right. <laughs> yeah, on that note, <laughs> I'm going to just move over there. Congrats on your beautiful new studio. I can't wait to see the sign. Send me a picture with the sign. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it up next week. All right, be good. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. What an interesting conversation. And isn't that also brought up by Adam, that your show highlights what having a conversation is about where you can be natural and real with each other and really have a delightful conversation of issues and progressions in one's life. And they don't do that in most talk shows or podcasts. And being real has a a tremendous essence to it. I like how he said that when he lost his job, that he says, you know, I've really got to take on responsibility and accountability for what I'm doing. And we all have our weaknesses, but let's highlight and follow up on what our strengths are and to see if we can try to get better at what we can do best. And isn't that what it's also all about? Getting someone to listen to you or getting a break, getting encouragement, having somebody give you a break and give you the ball to run with it. That's also, I think, a very important ingredient because we question ourselves along the way. And when there's somebody in your corner that's cheering you on, some people, when they get cheered on and they get some encouragement, guess what? They are able to accomplish things that that nobody even dreamed could even be possible. That was sweet of him to say I gave him some encouragement. Right. Part of his question is that all through your life, I've been there to try to encourage you and give you that little extra push because you've had a sense of things and a lot of ability. But you're ready to say, oh, I don't want to do it. I think I'm going to quit. It's too hard. It's frustrating. This one's criticizing me or that one's criticizing me. And I I used to tell you the same thing. We have to never give up. We have to reach for the stars and go for it. That You have the ability to do it. And you had the ability when you were 10 years old. And the truth of the matter is, is that experiencing things and being able to develop yourself and develop your confidence, you've been able to ascertain more and more height all along the way. Just like this recruiting job that Adam is an expert at and helping people find their way, they have to be able to want to do it and do it themselves. We can show the way, but nobody can push you through the door. 
thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.